Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 702. The Naked Scientist. Happy, happy Monday. Dr. Chris, how are you doing? I'm really good and I'm looking forward to my Valentine's Day card you're sending me. Are you going to accompany it with the flowers or is it just the card this year? I'm trying to imagine what do you get? What does one get a scientist for Valentine's Day? Like what is romantic? I would probably go to, um, you know, those sites where nerds go and get awesome things. Just random and awesome finds that you like are at an auction and rare. That's what I'd get you for Valentine's Day. Got me to a T. Yeah, one of those fancy <laughs> things that looks good on the mantelpiece but is absolutely useless in all other respects. Yes. But, but it does serve as a talking point because then you can say, well, Labour exactly. got that for me for Valentine's Day. <laughs> Exactly that. Now, before we take everybody's calls on 011-883-0702 in the WhatsApp line, 072-702-1702, you and I had homework mm, for one another we last did. week. How have you got on? And I actually realized I could do it. Go on. So the homework, let me, let me share with all of the listeners. So the question that I asked the good doctor was, is it possible to teach a child or a baby, their nursery rhymes as a story, as in because they know the song and the lyrics, are they able to recite the words as story? And he said he'd get the homework. And then the doctors challenged me to say, actually, there is a show um, in the UK. And what they do is they challenge you to sing the lyrics of one song to the melody of another song. So what I had uh, chose actually somebody chose it for me is they chose the melody of what you won't do for love which is by bobby caldwell if you're a tupac fan you will all know the song and the lyrics of stevie wonders for your love do you know those songs doctor because you have to verify well i do but but i'm going to listen to you singing them for me now here we go <laughs> okay Ooh. For your love, I would do anything just to see the smile upon your face. For your love, I would do anything just to see the smile upon your face. I'm impressed. That's amazing. <laughs> I it's can't sing easy, for Toffee, though. but singing on the radio... <laughs> A cappella. That's really very good. Now, here's a, here's a slightly more advanced challenge. Can you sing oh, no. It's a Sin by the Pet Shop Boys to the tune of Hesitation by Nirvana? It's a Sin by the Pet Shop Boys to Hesitation by Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a bit harder. You you got good tunes that were easy to see, that you, they okay, were I, easy I have for to a go good singer to sing. Song because yeah. I don't know the lyrics of Pet Shop, but I, I I accept the challenge. It is quite a brain <laughs> thing. It's almost like I almost feel like I'm using the part of the brain where you have to spin your hands in opposite directions. D correct. Yeah, absolutely. Because when we sing, that is a sequence of movements made in the right direction at the right time, just with your mouth and lungs and diaphragm and so on. And it's just like patting your head 
and rubbing your tummy and then reversing that and you learn a certain sequence of movements and it's very hard to then unlearn them because you've got a certain pattern which is singing in a certain sequence in a certain way in a certain rhythm and to then try and superimpose that on a new tune or a new beat frequency and so on it's really difficult because you're unlearning what you've already learned but you did very well I'm, I'm really impressed I, I think that, uh, well, look I know I know the song so it was easy but if somebody put me on the spot and they said you have like three minutes to learn the song and the, the the lyrics and then marry them, that would be like a serious challenge. But if money's on the line, best believe. Are you putting up some pounds, uh, Chris? <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> All right. So you have some homework. Can children use the parts of the brain and the information from learning the song to recite the, the words? Well, they do, which is the sort of point we made last week, which was that when we get children... Uh, memorizing things what we're doing is we're we're giving them a, a teaching in language we're teaching them to make sounds and words and we're teaching them to to do it in a way that has a pattern to it and, and the reason that we have patterns i mean you were saying isn't it interesting how a lot of these things share the same sort of temporal rhythm and so on yeah you could say well why do, do humans even have poetry why do we like poems why do we like songs and why are they so culturally entrenched it doesn't matter where you go on earth and you find find ancient civilized Organizations, they had song. We know that people who lived in caves tens of thousands of years ago were probably making musical instruments based on the archaeology we have. Mm. So why is there this rich kind of tapestry where sound and music and rhythm and rhyme and drumming, why is that so drummed into us? And the answer is that before we learned to write and read, we had to have a way of recording information and doing it faithfully because if we're going to pass the message on, pass our histories on, pass our personal stories on to the future generations, and then that was critical for life because you needed to pass on the, the message with good integrity so it didn't distort, uh, partly because your life depended on it, knowing when to harvest things at the right time of year, where to look for food, where to look for water and so on. You needed to make sure those messages were transmitted faithfully. How do you do it? Well, you have some simple rules ar around how the language is formed. You make things rhyme. If you make them rhyme, they're much easier to remember. And when they don't rhyme, you know you've got it wrong. So it's a like way of fact checking and working out how to keep the message faithful. And if you do that in poetry and, and rhyme, you, you have a story, which we all like to tell a story and we remember stories, but you also constrain the way in which it's being communicated by having rhythm and rhyme. And that, we think, is one of the reasons why things like poem and song are so pervasive across cultures in periods before people actually had a way of writing things down and faithfully communicating messages that way. And I think probably that's part of the reason we get kids into that from an early age. It's, it's how we used to get ourselves into the mindset of how we remember things and, and how we communicate them. Yes, yes. Okay. I think we both both passed our homework, so I'm very, very impressed with the both of us. <laughs> 0727021702 and 0118207702. And we have another Chris in Pretoria. Chris, how are you doing? Hi, good day. Uh, fine, thanks, and you. Good. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, uh, just greetings to Chris there as well. <laughs> I'm just, um, I've got a question. Um, how did, uh, with uh, human beings now, they, we assume that they originated from Africa, but I'm just wondering, um, when human beings start exploring the rest of the world and in other continents, how come there are human beings on those lands as well? 
Oh, How Chris, did they get there? Yeah. Well, we obviously don't know because we weren't there and we weren't writing things down. But what we do have are a number of different independent strands of evidence which range from what we left behind when our ancestors moved around, so the archaeological record. We've got genetic records, so we can look at the modern-day extant populations in places, especially where there have been population bottlenecks in the past, and it's concentrated certain genes in populations, and we can then look where those genes are distributed, so we have a sort of genetic tapestry that we can follow. And people are even looking at diseases. And what I mean by that is that some people get certain diseases because their populations are prone to them, but some people carry with them certain diseases. There is a very common bacterium called Helicobacter pylori, discovered initially um, by Barry Marshall in Western Australia, which is linked to stomach ulcers and stomach cancer and duodenal ulcers. That bacterium also has different genetic forms of itself. And if you look at different populations around the world, you can look at the genetic makeup of their infection with Helicobacter pylori and it maps onto the archaeological record. You can look at the shape of people. People went to different places and adapted or thrived in certain environments. Certain sort of appearances, as in statures and shapes and body habitus, those things were were better suited to certain parts of the globe. And so you can begin to, again, use these. And if you bring all these different strands together, you can begin to compile a sort of story of where people went and when. And we used to think that the modern human appeared in Africa and then all of a sudden decided to leave about 50,000 years ago. It's now become a lot clearer that that is not the case, that there certainly was an exodus from Africa, and it was about fifty or 60,000 years ago that people moved en masse from Africa, and then we can follow these various migration patterns that the genetics tell us is there, that these other factors I've, I've mentioned can, can tell us about. But certainly people were making forays all over the world for you know many, many years before anatomically modern humans left Africa. But what we all agree on is that if you follow the genetics and you ask, well, as people leave a place where they start and they disperse across the world, then they're taking with them a more refined set or a, or a reduced set of genes with them. Therefore, the genetic diversity will drop the farther you go from the source. And if you look at it that way, there has to be a source, and that's Africa, as the origin of anatomically modern humans, and then it's distilled off into, into subgroups around the world thereafter. So we know that definitely happened, but we, we don't think that there was just this one-off sudden exodus out of Africa. There's a growing body of evidence now that people did come and go a bit before the mass population of the world, and a range of factors probably did help to drive that, including climate factors, other sorts of knowledge and learning, farming almost certainly got people mobilised in a greater way. So bringing all those factors together probably it was about 50 or 60,000 years ago but there had been many forays before that by our other ancestors as well 702 the naked scientist let's go to the lines we've got is it ruida in on park hi good afternoon yes go um, ahead uh is it advisable i want to know from dr chris at uh, the age of 70 to go and have cataract surgery done to a person's eyes. And what's the risk involved? Uh, did, you, did you say laser surgery to the eyes or cataract surgery? I couldn't hear very well, sorry. Uh, cataract, you know, where they mm. advise you to remove the sting or whatever that's over your eye. They want to remove that. Indeed. Cataract surgery is one of the oldest performed surgeries in the world. 
I suspect probably circumcision is also up there on the list, but uh, hopefully the surgeon won't mud up the two ends of the body. And it's one of the most successful and life-changing forms of surgery, and it's also routinely performed on many people who are much older than 70. The reason you would have a cataract operation, and cataracts are very, very common, is that the lens which sits in a sack behind your cornea in the front of your eye with age becomes foggy. And the reason it becomes foggy is that the lens contains proteins, which are called crystallines, which, as the name suggests, are highly crystallised in a highly ordered format so that they have minimal effect on the light that passes through them except to focus it. And as we get older, although there are various chemicals in the eye to protect the crystallines from degradation, they do slowly degrade and they begin to fall apart. And this has the effect of scattering the light that goes through a bit and it scatters the uh, light that's, that's shorter wavelength a bit more than the longer wavelengths. And the effect of that is to make things look foggy and you tend to function less well in low light and you tend to see certain colours a bit better than others but the effect is a slow deterioration in vision and usually it's symmetrical to both eyes. So if you have one that's really bad then the other one's going to be really bad as well. And so usually the cataract surgeon, the eye surgeon, will do one and then they let you get better from that one, then they do the other one. You don't do both at the same time if you can avoid it and, and under normal circumstances because that way a person is okay uh, to, to operate and function with one eye while the other one's still recuperating. The way that they do it is to remove the foggy lens from inside that bag in, behind the cornea at the front of the eye and this is called phaco emulsion. You put a special probe in that can break down the lens in situ actually and you then put in a lens prosthesis. This is a specially made plastic lens that replaces the thing that had got foggy but is completely clear and it can even correct for a visual problem. So if you wore glasses beforehand you can get a special lens put in which is the right refractive power to correct for your visual decrement and you're then given perfect vision again and uh, people say it's life-changing and it really does alter lives and people just can't believe how dull the world had looked because they just got mm. used to having worse and worse vision. So the answer is, if this is affecting you and it's affecting your quality of life, it's one of the best and safest things that you can do, as long as you have a reputable ophthalmologist doing it, of course. And I would strongly suggest that you go ahead. You don't need any anaesthetic other than local anaesthetic. This can be done with a patient awake. Most of them are, because then you can ask people how they're getting on and make sure they're all right. And, um, and it's very, very quick and easy to do. And the recovery time is very, very short and uh, very, very little discomfort. All right, we've got a voice note. My baby mama has been complaining that my daughter behaves the same way that I behave. She does certain things exactly the way I do them, but I'm hardly with her. So it's behavior that she is not copying from seeing me doing it. So uh, it looks like it comes from her DNA. So how is it that DNA is able to uh, copy um, behavior which is untangible thank you mm, so as in the child is not actually mirroring what they're seeing but it is within them is that possible doctor um 
To a certain extent, yes, it is, in the sense that we've had the conversation here on the programme about a week ago. Mm. And thank you, Nikki, who sent me pictures of, of weaver nests, for example, where the male birds weave these intricate nests to impress the females and, and bring them in. No one has taught them how to do that. They intrinsically and innately know how to build that nest and where to build that nest and what to make it look like to be attractive to a female. So there are some behaviours that certainly are innate to us. They're wired into our our the brain and that means they're they're effectively wired into our genetics because our dna dictates how the brain puts itself together but these sorts of behaviors are few and far between and certainly in humans um most of our behaviour we learn from the environment in which we grow up. There are some things we innately know how to do. We know how to cry so that we call our mum and dad and get us fed or change our nappy, for example. And that's about it. Um, but some birds are actually much more complicated. But most of our behaviour we will learn as a complex behaviour from watching others. And if there are behaviours that this individual is saying they have not directly passed on, well, perhaps perhaps they made such a big impression in the few times they have been in contact or the short amount of time they do spend together that it is rubbing off. So I would say it's, it's less likely to be genetic and more likely um, to be uh, observational because children have got a brain like a sponge and they very quickly soak up, accommodate and assimilate what they see going around, around themselves because that's how we learn. That's how we learn language. It's how we learn to speak and sing, how we learn to read and write ultimately is by people uh, showing us something and then we're copying them and it extends right through to um, you know playing tennis so I suspect it's more likely that it's a limited exposure that has been copied rather than something genetic Okay, a very quick question before we wrap up the show. And the person's asking about when you boil a water in a microwave and then afterwards you put in coffee or sugar, but it kind of has that delayed reaction. This is from Dick in Western Area. Hi, Dick. I suspect what you're asking is if you put the hot water from the microwave on the counter in front of you and then you drop in the sugar and then it can suddenly explode. The reason this happens is that a microwave oven can superheat bits of the water so they are actually above the boiling point of the water but the uh, attraction of the water molecules holds the water the body of the water together and stops it boiling in those hot spots locally but when you drop in an object like sugar which has got lots of surface area that's sharp it acts as what we call a nucleation center where it makes it much easier for little bubbles to form and those little bubbles of boiling water can um prise apart the water on a surface much more easily than they can overcome the natural adhesion or surface tension of the water molecules clinging together. And that's why the water then appears to explode because you produce lots of big volume bubbles underneath and inside the water itself, which takes up lots of space, which then throws the water out of the mug. You've got to be really careful if you put things like uh, hot soup or you heat soup or you heat water and that kind of thing in a microwave oven. Do be very careful that this can happen. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. We'll see you next week.